She has no tricks or graces. No English poet has less pretensions. This is Poetry Says. I'm Alice, and today I'm talking with Sonia Sakalakis. And Sonia has one of the most interesting jobs of anyone that I know. Hey, Sonia. Oh, hi, Alice. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do as a bibliotherapist? Well, bibliotherapy is the use of literature to enhance, to nourish, to elevate and transform our lives. People consult bibliotherapists if they have a particular need or they're at a particular point in their life journey and they need some books and usually it's fiction and poetry to guide them along the way. Um, but I also run shared reading circles where we read aloud from the same text together in literary salons. Wow, that sounds amazing. And you also do a bit of work with the School of Life, is that right? That's right, yes. That's where I do most of the private consultations, um, both internationally and with Melbourne clients. Such an amazing job. Oh, thank you. And so today we're going to chat about Charlotte Mew's The Call. And I have to admit I'd never actually heard of Charlotte Mew before you mentioned her to me. But then I started researching her and I was completely captivated by her story. So I'll tell you a bit of what I found. It's one of those classically tragic life stories, even for her time in Victorian England. So this is an extract from the Poetry Foundation's entry on Mew. Charlotte Mew was born in London in 1869 into a family of seven children. She was the eldest daughter. While she was still a child, three of her brothers died. Later, another brother and then a sister were committed to mental hospitals in their 20s, where they would spend the rest of their lives. That left only Charlotte and her sister Anne, both of whom, because of the history of mental illness in their family, decided never to marry so they wouldn't pass the traits on to their children. The traumatic issues Mew grappled with during her childhood, death, mental illness, loneliness and disillusionment became themes in her poetry and stories. So wow, there's just so much that this poor woman had to deal with in her life. Just oh, incredible. absolutely. Yeah, she's very much the tormented artist. Absolutely. But she's not, she's not all about tragedy. She made her name in London's literary circles with a collection called The Farmer's Bride, and that was published in 1916. And that book actually caught the attention of poets like Siegfried Sassoon, Ezra Pound, and Virginia Woolf, who said that Mew was the greatest living poetess. But then tragedy started again. The year that the farmer's wife was reprinted in 1921, Mew lost her family home. A few years later, she lost her sister Anne to cancer, and she actually ended up taking her own life in a nursing home in 1928. And the review that said, no English poet has less pretensions, actually came out after her death in The Observer. So there's just so much there, just even in her life story, it's, it's quite incredible what she went through. So I'll hand over to you, Sonia, now if you'd like to talk a bit more about Mew or, or read the poem. Um, yes, it's interesting how I came across um, Mew myself. I stumbled upon a biography of Mew by Penelope Fitzgerald, just in an off shop, and I was just looking at the books, and I hadn't heard of her, and I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting, and it was a very beautifully researched, beautifully um, imagined book. And it does, um, you know, it captures the tragedy, but also she was a very creative artist and um, she spent time in these literary circles and uh, Thomas Hardy would be one of the members of these circles and 
also Harold Monroe, another poet of the time, and he ran a poetry shop um, in the Bloomsbury district. And it was just dedicated poetry. There would be um, readings by poets of the time and there were children's rhyming sheets. And, yeah, it was quite an eccentric, creative time. Uh, yeah, so it was an interesting discovery to hear about Charlotte Mew, who unfortunately is not that... Um, She's sort of overlooked now as a poet, but I think this poem has a lot to say. It still has um, resonance for us today. Now, it's an incredible poem, so um, would you like to read it through for us now? Yeah, sure. From the low seat beside the fire, where we have dozed and dreamed and watched the glow, or raked the ashes, stopping so. We scarcely saw the sun or rain above or looked much higher than this quiet, red or burnt out fire. Tonight we heard a call, a rattle on the window pane, a voice on the sharp air, and felt a breath stirring our hair, a flame within us, something swift and tall, swept in and out, and that was all. Was it a bright or a dark angel? Who can know? It left no mark upon the snow. But suddenly it snapped the chair, unbarred, flung wide the door, which will not shut again. And so we cannot sit here anymore. We must arise and go. The world is cold without and dark and hedged about with mystery and enmity and doubt. But we must go, though yet we do not know who called or what marks we shall leave upon the snow. So beautiful and such a great reading. Thanks, Sonia. So why do you think Mew uses the word we throughout that poem instead of more personal I? Um, yeah, I thought about that too, actually, and I always feel like she's inviting the reader in. It becomes an inclusive thing. I think it heightens a sense of intimacy by, by the we as opposed to the I. So that might be the motivation behind that. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. So there seems to be a change in atmosphere that comes maybe about halfway through the poem. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, it is. It's quite a dramatic um, change and it occurs after the first six lines. So from the first six lines you have this sense of it must be really cold. I mean, it's very cold in Melbourne, so you can imagine it must be very cold where they are and they're sitting by the fire. And they're dozing and dreaming and watching the glow. It sounds quite idyllic. There's a sense of bliss and contentment. And they scarcely saw the sun or rain above or looked much higher than the same quiet, red or burnt-out fire. So it's a very um, inward feeling. It's a, very, it's a sense of, oh, we're so happy the way we are. We don't need to look beyond. There's a sense of, um, yeah, we're in our comfort zone. And then after that line, 
Um, and we get to tonight we heard a call. That's when things... It sounds ominous initially when you read it. A rattle in the window pane, a voice in the shelter. And then it just sort of intensifies, you know, that sense of almost menacing, the sense that this could be menacing. But then you read on and you're not, you're not yeah, you're not quite convinced <laughs> that it is menacing. Yeah, it sounds like this disturbance is something malevolent at first, but then yes. there's definitely, yeah, questions come up later in the poem. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I thought... Um, because we have the call and it starts as a rattle, so it's on the window pane and then it gets close and then it's a voice and sharp air and a breath stirring our hair and then um, a flame within us. So it becomes, it gets closer and closer and then it's within them. So you're wondering, is this ex actually an external disturbance? Is it an inner voice? Is it, are they being summoned? Um, it's almost like they suddenly feel this desire to get up and it was swift and tall, so it was quite huge, quite powerful and it swept in and out and that was all. But it's interesting, it left no mark upon the snow, but then you question, you, you start to question, was it in fact external, but then you're thinking perhaps not with that line. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it, sounds, yeah. it seems like a human... Or, or inhuman presence, it seems like a, a physical presence, and then you start to question that. You start to I think, know. is this actually That's coming right. from inside the speaker somewhere? And then you think maybe when it says suddenly it snapped the chair, unbarred, flung wide the door, it could be, it's um, a metaphor of the impact. It's like, oh, because once the chair snapped, you can't sit on it. Once the door's open and it won't shut again, you can't close it. It's a sense. It's, there's no way back. You've crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> yeah, there's this finality to it. It's, yeah. it's a very decisive. They're taking decisive action, and I like the idea. I mean, it's interesting too. We must arise and go. You hear that twice. We must arise and go, and then later on, but we must go. The sense of urgency. It's no longer a sense. It's actually. It's an action. Yeah. There's no doubt. Um, there's no room for negotiation. She just has to, whatever it is that the speaker feels that she has to do, it has to happen. So what are some of the key lines in the poem for you? I suppose it's towards the end. Um, it says, the world is cold without and dark and hitched about with mystery and enmity and doubt. But we must go. So it's not... It's not like a siren's call. It's not a seductive call. When you're thinking it's a dark world and it's cold, it's enmity and doubt. Um, you think, oh, there's so many unknowns. But then I'm heartened later on when it says, you shall leave upon the snow. The marks we shall leave upon the snow. But then you think, but these are the marks that I'll leave upon the snow. So I suppose these lines, yeah, they are quite powerful for me. Those last few lines. Mm. Yeah, there's a sense that if you take this action, you are going to leave some sort of mark, be that positive or negative. There'll be some kind of result. 
Uh, yeah, and that's what really speaks to me the most, I think. It's the sense of if we stayed in the warmth, sitting by the fire, we wouldn't be making our marks upon the snow. But you have to get out. <laughs> you have to, yeah, you have to go out of the warmth to leave the marks upon the snow, to leave legacy or to leave something behind. I'm not sure what. Hmm. And it can only happen once you're out there. Yeah, it's an amazing one, and um, it's definitely it definitely fits with that line from the review about not having many pretensions. It's it's quite a timeless poem too, isn't it? Yes, I like the fact. I mean, it was written in the Victorian era, but there's nothing to give it away that it was written at the time. Or in fact, in any time, you're not quite sure. It has such um, a sense of vitality, and there's a modern feel to it. It could have been written yesterday, really, because the language is so clear, it's so unadorned. Um, it speaks to the universal heart. Was, um, so I, I think that's one of the things that drew me to it. That you couldn't pinpoint, you couldn't identify when it was written, or even where. So I like the sense that it could be. You could put it anywhere, you can be anywhere and read this poem, and you still feel renewed by it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for bringing it to us, Sonia. It's amazing. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. So where can people find you if they want to know more about bibliotherapy? Um, I suppose the best place is my website, uh, literaryhand.com. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Show notes are at poetrysays.com and you can tweet me at poetrysays. Mm-hmm.